0: This morning's reading is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 42. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, the leading bulls being bound up on their cloaks, uh, in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewellery and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations.
1: If you can catch sight of that reading there, you'll find that helpful. Hopefully you've had one of these sort of A5 sheets as you came in. If not, there are some pew Bibles in front of you there and you can follow that along. This morning, the title of this message is Delivered as Promised. We've said earlier on in our journey through Exodus that Exodus is God's beginning to fulfill the promise to Abraham. It was a promise made back in Genesis 12 and it was a promise that he would make a great people Who would be under his gracious rule and whom he would plant in his good land. And there has been here a long interval where it may have felt like God had not remembered that promise. Or maybe he was just not fulfilling that promise. And I wonder whether you might identify with that feeling the feeling of waiting for God to deliver. Maybe even a long wait. Well, God doesn't do what Mary Poppins... You heard that right. Every now and again, I'll drop an unexpected reference. He doesn't do what Mary Poppins would call a pie crust promise. A promise easily made, easily broken. In these verses here, we see that the people take their first footsteps into freedom. And the one idea this morning to take away with you is that God delivers on his promises. We see that firstly, that the people are walking to freedom. And if you turn your eyes to verse 29 to 34, that first paragraph, you'll see that. In the movie Braveheart, uh, William Wallace makes this great statement at one point. He says, You think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide these people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. Pharaoh had taken Israel's freedom, he'd enslaved them, he'd used them to keep hold of his position. Pharaoh had used his own people as cannon fodder to keep hold of his position. Pharaoh had even sacrificed his own son, despite God's repeated warnings through Moses, to keep hold of his position. But we deal with and see this morning a God who is willing to give up his position and use his position to save his people. Jesus will come, Paul will reflect on this in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he was willing to let go of his position for a time at the right-hand side of the Father to come and to save us. Here this morning we see the people walking to freedom. that he would judge the gods of Egypt and that he would judge the people of Egypt for their rebellion. It's worth remembering for a second that Egypt had inflicted this same suffering upon Israel. Back to chapter 1, verse 16. Pharaoh commanding, a different Pharaoh at the time, but commanding the midwives to kill the firstborn sons of the Israelites, commanding them to be thrown into the Nile, And remember that this people could have turned from their rebellion and been saved. They've had nine other warnings to learn this message. And then look at the responses. We see three responses there, don't we? Pharaoh's response, Egypt's response, and Israel's response. We see that Pharaoh pleads, Egypt fear, and Israel leave. Pharaoh pleads. He gives this message through his servants, doesn't he? He said previously that he wouldn't see Moses' face again, but Moses has said that your servants will come to me and they will bow down before me and beg for me and the people to go. And so, Pharaoh does. And look at what he says, verse 31 to 32. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, "'Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel,' And go, serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And bless me also. He's urgent, isn't he? He gives three directives. Up, go out, be gone. He who had clung so tightly to the Israelites now can't get rid of them fast enough. But notice there, verse 32, they're going to go with everything. Take your flocks and your herds. As you've said, Moses has said in chapter 10 that they must all go. There's no negotiated exit for Israel. They must all go, he says. In fact, not a hoof shall be left behind. And so it is, as Moses had said. But look at Pharaoh's reaction at the end of verse 32. And bless me also. There are the words of a highly delusional man. Bless me also. See, Pharaoh's problem had never been that he didn't believe in God's power. He does. He's asking for it to be given to bless him. But he's wanted to stand against him. And that just won't do. Pharaoh pleads. Egypt, fear, don't they? Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead now in fact that threat had never been made had it chapter 11 verse 6 here there would be a great cry throughout Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again the threat wasn't that they would all be killed God isn't a tyrant Pharaoh may be a tyrant but God is not but Egypt fear don't they They want Israel gone because what more can possibly fall apart for them? Their rebellion has left them with Egypt lying in ruins. They've said as much to Pharaoh before. Pharaoh pleads, Egypt fear, and Israel leave. Verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people leave. Immediately, not even staying to finish their bread. They have no provision along the way. This tells us faith is a challenge, isn't it? Last time, one of the aspects that we saw about that was that faith is a challenge because you'll never know everything when following God's call. Here, we see that faith is a challenge because you won't always be ready for what calls you to do when he calls you to do it. And that's hard, isn't it? Why is that hard? Well, in life it's very good to plan, but it's also very tempting to begin to limit what God can do to your plan, isn't it? It's easy to follow God if you're always ready, if you always know what's coming. But God calls you to go when you're not when you have to trust. That's something we've known as a church here, isn't it? As we've reflected on the place that we find ourselves in as a church, both geographically, but also just where we are in the life and where God has brought us. You don't always know exactly what he's going to do before he does it, that you find yourself catching up with what he's already doing. But it is better to follow God into the unknown than sit in the waiting room forever forever. God delivers on his promises. He has promised them freedom, and they're walking into freedom here. And through Jesus, God delivers us from slavery and into freedom too. Our slavery looks very different to Israel's, doesn't it? But there's a reality that there's a problem of sin, that sin is not just about actions done, it's about our nature. It's about who we are. It's about a reflex. It's something that separates us from God. It holds us even. It's hard to break away from. And Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. But he also died to free us from slavery to sin. Where we just keep trusting the false promises that sin offers and doesn't deliver on. You know them. You'll feel good. You'll enjoy it. You deserve it. You've earned it. Cut yourself some slack. You can't live without that. This will make you feel worthy. This will make you feel alive. But Paul writes here, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And we thought freedom through Exodus, freedom through uh, the course of the Bible, is not freedom to be yourself. It's freedom to serve God. A loving and kind and gracious master. Slaves of righteousness, not sin. The people here are walking into freedom because God delivers on his promises. But secondly, here we see the fortunes restored for Israel. In the movie Catch Me If You Can, uh, Frank Jr., played by Leonardo DiCaprio, becomes a con artist because he wants to go back and to get everything that his family had lost. And so he says to his dad at one point in the course of this, you don't need to worry about anything now, dad. Listen, I'm getting a brand new Cadillac. I'm getting a $60,000 house. Boy, inflation's hit, hasn't it? I'm getting it all back. All the jewelry, all the furs, everything, dad. Everything they took from us. I'm going to get it back. And in the movie, actually, he loses it just as soon as he gets hold of it, doesn't he? And here, though, God restores the fortunes of Israel that everything they had lost is returned. Look at verse 35 there with me. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. This is one of the high points of the relationship between Moses and Israel. Because they're actually following Moses as God's leader. The same Moses who initially was rejected by some Israelites back in chapter 2. The same Moses that the people will question, why did you bring us out? Was it because there wasn't enough grave space in Egypt? You just lead us out to die in the wilderness? The same Moses who, when he's still on the mountain with God, receiving the law from him, will say, look, we don't know what's going to happen to him, he may have died Let's carry on without Moses and let's follow some new gods. The same Moses who himself will say to God, why do you hate me in giving me this job of leading this people? Kill me instead. That would be better. This is a high point in the relationship that people do as Moses has said. And why do the Egyptians agree to giving them this jewelry, look at verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And it's the very wording that God has promised back in chapter 3 that they would plunder Egypt, that they would go with all of this jewelry and riches to set them up on the way. And surely this request for this jewelry if God hadn't told them to ask, surely they wouldn't have asked. Surely you would have just thought, it's good enough that we're getting out of here. It's a ridiculous request, isn't it? But God had turned failure to favor for them in sight of the Egyptians. See, God delivers on his promises, and here one aspect of that is that he's restoring their fortunes financially. But what about the bad bit of the story? You see, the Christian life isn't always about prosperity, is it? We enter glory at the end of the Christian life, but much of the Christian life can be very, very difficult. That was Jesus' experience, wasn't it? And that was his call. Remember, he says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. That's in the aftermath of Peter trying to encourage him away from pursuing that journey to the cross. Let it not be so, Lord. And Jesus having to correct him. say, no, it must be so. You don't see and understand that yet, but it must be so. And you too must live like me. Christian life can be very difficult. But also, there can still be God's good purposes, even in bad things, sad things, things we wouldn't choose. Romans 8 verse 28 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that is true. But you will only see that looking backwards in life. When you're looking at it, It's just hard, isn't it? The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard sums it up like this. He says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And that's the challenge, isn't it? But look at verse 37 and 38, because there's more ways than just financially that God is restoring fortunes here. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Uh, One commentator has approximated that if there's around 600,000 men here, the total population might be something like three million people. And at the time, that is a significant body of people. But there's more to it too, isn't there? Because it tells us there's a mixed multitude it tells us that there are people from other peoples joining the people of Israel. Now, it doesn't tell us whether that's perhaps some Egyptians who, in fact, have lost all heart and trust in Pharaoh and maybe placed trust in God and are following along, perhaps. Or perhaps it's people from some other migrant communities in Egypt at the time. But either way, the point is that this is a growing people. And it's growing beyond just Israel themselves. God's people are always to be a global people. God delivers on his promises. He's restored the fortunes. Not just financially, but this is a growing people. Remember that promise, a people under God's rule in his land. And then there's that drama, isn't there? Verse 39. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough they'd brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Faith is very often an adventure, uncertain, and has surprises along the way. It's worth asking just at the end here of this section, A question that's so obvious we may very well forget to ask it at all. And that's, why does God do this? Why does he restore their fortunes? Let me attempt to give you three simple answers to why I think he does this. Firstly, because he said so. And that's important because it means that you can trust his word. If he delivers on his promises, he's trustworthy, isn't he? Because he said so. But secondly, because he wants to. Because God's heart is generous. And thirdly, because he can. So that you would know that he has power over all things. God restores Israel's fortunes. And through Jesus, God restores our fortunes too. Being a Christian does not shield you from tough times, but fortunes are restored in the end. In this life, we may never be rich, or fully healthy, or fully happy, or successful to the level we'd like, or popular, or on and on. There's no guarantees. But in eternity, our fortunes are restored. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, this light momentary affliction, talk about living life looking backwards. You can only say words like that, looking backwards. It does not feel like that at the time. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, that is passing, fading. But the things that are unseen are eternal, eternal. God restores our fortunes, but next, finally, we see he gives a future. One of the many great interactions between Bruce Wayne and Alfred, his wise butler in the Batman films, Bruce Wayne is asking, should I just bury the past out there with my parents? Alfred replies, I wouldn't presume to tell you what to do with your past, sir. Just know that there are those of us who care about what you do with your future. Bruce Wayne in that moment needed to turn his attention from the past and to the future. And so do Israel here. They have lived with no hope for any future. But now their future begins. 40 there. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And it seems to me that it might be hard to take freedom that's given to you when you have been mistreated for so long and adjusted your life expectations to that mistreatment and not to God's promises. And over the next few chapters that go ahead, I think that might explain some of the difficulty Israel have in really believing that God really will deliver on his promises. They have left when God decided they were to leave because God was in charge. Now that is a very challenging idea to take on board, that God could have been in charge in the moment where His people for more than 400 years have experienced extreme suffering. And what is happening here is that truths are being balanced. Because God has given Egypt 400 years of patience and room to repent. But now, he also shows he is just too and God frees his people from adversity and suffering here because he's a good father but we also know as parents too that it's not always a good thing to shield our children from everything sometimes they have to go through some difficult things to learn how to manage and to cope and to overcome those it's a challenging thing as a parent isn't it to allow them to do that But God had promised 400 years in Egypt, and then he would free them. He's given that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. And he delivers on that promise here, doesn't he? Look at Verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. It's a night of expectation and anticipation, a bit like in some ways, Christmas Eve can be for us. It can be the best day of the year, the worst day of the year. Because of the thing that makes it good, it makes it bad. The anticipation, the expectation, means that behavior falls apart for children, sometimes adults. Uh, people are wired all day. No sleep is had. Well, here it's that expectation and anticipation. What is God going to do? What are we going to wake up to? Will we really be able to walk into freedom again? And we thought last week that this established a tradition for future generations, which tells us there's a future they're already walking in, isn't it? God always delivers on his promises, and he delivers the people from hopelessness, into a new future that begins. And through Jesus, our future can begin again. When we look out to the world, there's not much hope for the future, is there? Whether you think about the climate crisis, you think about economics, problems with inflation, everything else. When you look at the political landscape and the division that there is currently, when you just look out to society as a whole, there's not a lot of hope, is there? And there's not a lot of people holding hope. Well, the place that we find an unfading certainty for a hopeful future is Jesus' redemption. First Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, Peter tells us, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And why does he do it? Notice that phrase it begins off with, according to his great mercy. Because he's merciful, because he's loving. He loves you because he loves you. Not because of something that makes you deserving of it. I'm sad to say there isn't anything that makes you deserving of it but on the positive side that means there's nothing that will make you unlovable to him because it's not pegged to your performance it's because he is loving that he loves you in the Christmas movie Jingle All the Way the son has this great line for his dad played by Arnold Schwarzenegger a masterpiece of dramatic uh, performance as ever He says, Dad, when someone makes a promise, they definitely should keep it. You know, it's like Turbo Man says, Turbo Man's the toy he's desperately after. And his dad has promised, but hadn't got so far. Always keep your promises if you want to keep your friends. Israel had a long wait, 400 plus long years of slavery and suffering in Egypt. The place that God had initially used to rescue them from famine. Do you remember that Jacob and his families through Joseph, his son, were rescued from famine by going down to Egypt? The place that had been a place of rescue had become a place of suffering. But God delivers on his promises here, through history, always. So where are you looking to find freedom? Is it through Being the authentic you? Being free to do whatever you want to do and then you'll really feel free in life? What are you trusting in? For your prosperity, for your joy, for your happiness, for your contentment? Relationships? Career? Looks? Qualifications? Do you have a hope for the future? Or do you too feel hopeless as you look at the political, economic, climate situation, or just society around us? Well, and the message this morning is: look to Christ. Look to Christ for freedom, for joy, for prosperity, for a hopeful future. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God delivers on his promises for Israel in rescuing them, and for you by rescuing you in Jesus. God delivers on his promises, then, through history, and always.